out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the amazing Chris Tofu. Tofu. Um, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry and also life in the band and not only just in the band but also refers to himself as a vibe engineer he's the managing director of Continental Drifts and has got an MBE and has uh, put on various amazing events at every festival you could name including Glastonbury yes he's the pioneer of vintage remix and he's uh, quite the mover and shaker on the festy scene and worked in or for such places as, um, yes, Las Vegas in Glastonbury, as well as Boomtown Latitude, Shambhala, the Secret Garden, and many, many more. Anyway, look, this is the interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject. That was the early formative years. Chris, tell us about your early formative years. Because um, I just told him mine, which was fascinating. But that's edited out. We go straight to Chris. Take it away. Because I'm from Torquay, which has always been about hospitality. Parents ran a hotel down there as well. And <coughs> I often think now. <coughs> yes. Me. There you go. Don't die. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about hospitality. But I went to this kind of rubbish school and... Um, the biology teacher was also the religious studies teacher and she was a Quaker and she ran a trip to Glastonbury. Blimey. She was a Quaker to look at the Quakers there. Right. She didn't go to see the Jesus army then. It was the Quakers, not yeah. the Jesus army. No, the Quakers were the first. I think you find that Evis is a Quaker stroke Methodist. Oh, yes. Very strong. Yes. Put in, uh, put in work in for the greater community. Yeah. So... Mm. And also that good Samaritan stuff he does. Yes, absolutely. <coughs> <You know. laughs> yeah, I know the sprite the sprites are kicking off, aren't they? I know. You still got you still got sort of fifteen, I no, twelve days. Cough up. <coughs> they really are. I can't believe it. Anyway. So That's then we all so, what, so what year did you go to Glastonbury? To Glastonbury? 82. Right. 83. I can't remember quite what year it was. Yes. When Judy Duke was on the main stage. We were just kids. And then everyone had to go for a day trip. And then when we all got back to the bus, there was like missing children and everything. We would have to wait in the bus for ages while uh, Aswad played on the main stage. You could <laughs> practically hear it. <laughs> really annoying. And yes, we went from then, and then the following year, we're like Stonehenge, Glastonbury, everything. The whole business, actually. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So were you, because at that age, you were probably 18, weren't you? 16, 18, yeah. and 82. Yeah, in that I, way. Because yeah. I, I was kind of, I went to my first Glastonbury, 87, and I must admit, I was a little bit surprised, because walking up that main drag, all there was was people selling drugs, weren't there? Hash for cash, speed, smack, yeah. you know, but hash for cash, and I just like, 
you know, for miles until I got to the King's Meadow. So, where, where, you yeah, know, in the 80s... It was a little less then. Pardon? It was a little less when I first went. Right. It but wasn't then. as bad. Yeah. So when did you all, because obviously, if you remember in the dear old 80s, there had been the rise of the Socialist Workers' Party, Red Wedge. We had the folk tradition, well, no, not the folk tradition, people like... I don't know, um, the men they couldn't hang, the... the oh, yeah, like that sort of thing, yeah. And then we had the Seven Kevins, and there was not even I one Kevin. The seven Kevins. <laughs> there wasn't even yeah. a Kevin in the band. So when did you, what, you... Did you sort of head for a musical direction when you sort of left school? Yeah, well, no. No, not at all. It wasn't until I moved to London in... Uh, hmm, 85 or 86 or 87 or something that I met up with the uh, people who became Toffee Love Frogs, really. And that's when the sort of musical th side started happening really rather quickly. So, um, yeah, that went on from there. Before that, I wasn't really that musical. And to be, I'll be honest with you now, I'm really not that musical now. <laughs> <laughs> so what instrument did you pick up? Percussion, I've always been a vibe merchant. Right, so you got into yeah. the... Vibe engineering is my middle name, and that's this is what it. This is this is your job, your, your job yeah. title, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so in that period, there was a lot of you know going to camps and festivals. The Jimby Drum was kind of in everybody's cupboard, weren't they? In everyone's teepee and everyone's. <laughs> so did you? Was that your first percussion? No, listen. I think the thing is, is a lot of people look down on those sort of kiddie percussionists and you know percussionists in general, you know, and. Actually, those festival drum sessions that you and me have seen so often, like at the Stone Circle at Glastonbury or wherever, in the camps especially. Yes. Those are people's first access to actually performing and should be respected for what they are, which is, you know, literally open access. People perform music of any variety with strangers. Can't be encouraged enough. I know. Well, no, I mean, that, well, that was the time when, after the schooling experience of being told you can't play the, you know, musical instrument, getting the drum and just kind of yeah. being part of 20, 50 other people just going for hours on end, you know, yeah. it was just extraordinary. And people got very trans and, you know, kind of got trans out. They were very excited. that experience now with all the stupid music that they're meant to learn to pass this level or that level and they get there and it's like a, obscure 16th century polish you know or whatever a composer of classical music that they're made to learn without anything with the vibe yes so these things like uh, when joe rush pulled up with his uh drumming machine at glastonbury it's quite a revolutionary moment it was around the same time you i don't know if you remember that he had a whole massive truck there with uh, tons of drums all over it and it went 24 hours <laughs> I, yes i remember the the kind of stonehenge made out of cars my first yes, Glastonbury. same time yes same and, time and being again you know quite amazed by it you know having never seen anything quite like that apart from on, yeah. you know <laughs> those early glastonbury's did, did did have quite a vibe so with the tofu love frogs had the band been going before you appeared no no it all came out of something at middlesex university Right. Was that middle? Yeah. Did you go to university? At Middlesex, yeah. Brilliant. What were you studying? I was studying psychology there. But it was like, lucky to get in. 
How is anyone begging you to get in? Right. <laughs> yeah, begging anyone. <laughs> but a lot of things came out of that period then, and it was a very radical place. And um, of course, the thing was is that we come from a place that really respects underground alternative culture, not just in the UK, but across yes. Europe. There's a big autonomic mass of people doing stuff. So a lot of us knew about that. And then we kind of came up as a way to travel and try and travel amongst all those cool squats across Europe and all that anarchist stuff and meet up with other radical people. And the songs were so freaking radical that this <laughs> radio station being jailed by the end of the night if they played these tunes. <laughs> Did the music come together really quickly? Because because it's incredibly fast and it's very sort of lyrically, you know, pulsing, isn't it? I mean, who sort of came up with putting the structure together? Because frankly, I've just started the first hour of the eight-hour Beatles film, and seeing them rehearsing and trying to get a song together is quite something. Amazing film, yeah. Seeing that Beatles film has been a revelation in the last couple of weeks because it, it keeps burning in your mind how they made that in 70 hours and <laughs> you know like some of the most famous songs in the world yes 70 days i mean <laughs> it's just insane um well there's a guy called paddy tofu and uh, the rest of the band actually knew what notes were right and all worked together really well and paddy tofu himself had like really very well studied in the, in the history and um, consequences of uh, anarcho-syndicalism and stuff like that, you know. So he really knew what had gone on with the anarchists in the Basque during the revolution and stuff like that, you know. So we had a better idea of that. Things got really cooking, though, when we um, we started doing all the free festivals, you know. Yes. And at and that stage, well, it was quite interesting because during the sort of the 80s period, I mean, the festival movement had sort of kind of had slightly ground to a halt because it started roughly in about 71, 72, like the Barsham Fairs, the Albion Fairs. Yeah. And there was a real honeymoon yeah. period with the festival culture, wasn't there? And things started to expand a lot as we sort of realised. Yeah. Then as the 80s appeared, it started to get a bit rough and tough because I, I have spoke to quite a lot of those organisers. Have you? Amazing. And and was always kind of curious, you know, from people like Bruce Lacey, who put a few of those kind of wacky ones on to, oh. you know, um, various other people like, um, yes, from, from the sort of the Barsham fairs. And one thing that they all mentioned, there was another one at Tuttington in North Norfolk, was the oh, problem... Really? The the problem they had was with the convoy and the and the and the travelling community because it it kind of during that kind of eighties period there was kind of like people just turning up buses not wanting to pay going on site and then not wanting to leave and then it's like blimey we just wanted to put on a three day festival as well yeah so that that kind of gave it a bit of an edge didn't it during that period of the eighties was quite a complicated world wasn't it and then you know we had Thatcher, Thatcher yeah. came in in 79 there was the Falkland war then there was the miners strike Greenham Common and then she went guns out for the the battle of the Beanfield which kind of smashed that scene to pieces really didn't it by that time we were on the front of the newspapers yeah but um they when we first got to Stonehenge in 1984 or even 83 
there were still those people there and 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 you know these kind of hippies there with like big old coaches and that lovely calves and then a whole massive alternative thing going that we didn't know existed stuff like that you know and i personally thought that was very inspiring to see people living those lives and there was much more of that organic kind of culture rather than massive great big enormous techno rave party in and out in a weekend type thing going on yes it was a bit more long term wasn't it really and yeah. there was there was there was more of a heritage i mean with the people who were doing it. it up really to be honest in many ways because we weren't coming from that place we hadn't come from that place people like us were like from squats in london and you know urban things and then previous to you know a lot of those i mean i guess that everyone everyone was urban it was just all a big pretend thing as well <laughs> Not everyone was rural some people are of course but then <laughs> it came along with the um you know 100k of techno rig pissed off all the freaking everyone and then i remember because i went to carlson morton um <clears throat> there was actually hippies there who were like right we're out of the scene this is nothing to do with us anymore this is just too in and too violent too like unsustainable and stuff like that you know because a lot of those barsham people and the you know they invented the word green fuck's sake do you know yes. what i mean and well they, there was there was another book that everyone had the john seymour book on self-sufficiency and there was this kind of the cranks cookbook there was a very sort of organic yeah. idea of arcadia yeah. wasn't there going yeah. back to nature wanting to get back to the land <laughs> living like in community nowhere this sort of thing yeah so it was, it was a, there was a culture sort of clash that came in with the sort of techno scene, because I think people, A, wanted to hear sort of, you know, real music or real musicians or real instruments, and, you know, with a bit of a folk blues element and not sort of the techno, which kind of made it a bit of a, I don't know, two, two sides coming from different angles, really. And also a lot of people really loved the mysticism, didn't they? The sort of Ar Arthurian legends, ley lines, Glastonbury tour, the chalice well, you know, all that kind of world was kind of really yeah, important. To sort of be clashing in some way, but still an amazing thing. You know, Carson Warren was amazing, you know, and we did the live stage there and actually had loads of bands and stuff like that, you know. But I just think that it was just kind of a slight generational thing, plus, you know, Radio One advertising it for like three <laughs> days. Oh my God, there's going to be an enormous illegal party. <laughs> but you've got to remember that sort of the early 90s, suddenly the Orb were headlining on, on Friday or Saturday night. That was a huge change, wasn't it? That suddenly, where, where, where? You know, that was, that was when, you know, the, the Glastonbury lineup really changed quite a lot when you suddenly had that dance culture and, you know, hearing little fluffy clouds suddenly booming out all over the sort of yeah, festival. Yeah, right, right, you see, although today I was actually... Talking to this, it's a side story, I won't go on about it, but uh, talking to some people at radio in the BBC who've um, championed this type of new chill music. It's just phenomenal. It's, it goes on for a three hour show every Friday. Right. Just amazing mellow music, you know, and it's just like, wow, that's full circle. But before the dance fields arrived, Steve Hillage did a whole thing called Rainbow Dome Music up in those fields where we were. And I think that was actually the very beginning of all of that. 
Get old, get old. Experimental, experimental dance field, they called it, or something like that, you know. It was only there for a year, and then it disappeared. It was immense. Incredible. <laughs> yes, already. absolutely. And, what we, and your time in the band, I mean, because I've done a lot of interviews with bands, they normally sort of have a five-year narrative. They have 12-month honeymoon period, your things are going kind of well, they, they get a sound together, they suddenly get a kind of recording, they, they make some either cassette or flexi-disc or seven-inch single. And in the old days, John Peel would give it a play and a listen and then... My God, yeah. Yes, he was, he was all our gods, really, wasn't he? And that was kind of, you know, the John Peel session, the first album. So with the Tofu, Love Frogs, you obviously must have been touring and playing constantly all the time. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it was really good music, really good band. Um, it's, you know, hardcore 180 BPM Celtic punk. Yes, it was like Blows a Bellow on speed. Yeah, it was like it was like the fastest of all those bands. And in fact, if they'd have kept going, you know, eventually they would have cracked that fastest Celtic punk band in the world market. If there was one, <laughs> there is one now. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, we did tour for a really long time, and. Um, that way met some really lovely people uh we we're very addicted to touring in europe obviously because back in the day you know you could just do that and <laughs> guess what people thought england was cool i know <laughs> ancient history <laughs> and um uh so we did that for a very long time i think uh we a couple of unfortunate things happened that pushed us into a very radical direction was uh, we got put on this list for, which one was it? Because we did so many stages at the free festivals and just would rock up and put whole stages up and then get all these bands in that were just like all really looking for a gig and all the bands would always say, yeah, even if there was no sight or anything, you know, it was a very amazing period. Yes. And uh, then they'd rock up and man the stage, run the PA and everything. All these different bands that were in that subculture, as you know. And, uh, yeah, we did that for a long time. But eventually we got a really bad name, police. And they started, the Tories started passing really bad laws. And they passed one law where it was uh, okay to put the Toffee Love Frogs on a list that said that if anybody played at their venue, if, they, if you played at any fucking motherfucking venue, you the venue owner would lose their license and we were on the list and they also put on the far right fascist screwdriver punk band as oh well my God. and at one stage the levelers as well and the levelers got themselves off the list like that but we we just didn't know how or whatever anyway that went on for a while and then that was like well fuck you we're just going to do all these killer stages in free festivals put up our, our, our own areas, make our own gigs. Yeah, and then at that time, the environmental movement had really kicked in. Mm -hmm. And we just began to do loads of those gigs because the vibes there were just more amazing than any vibe practically I've ever experienced up to this year. Yes, yeah, there you so, go. You, uh, you navigated it. So then what happens kind of 97 with the band? Do you, is this when the band call it a day? 
Yeah, something like that. Um, it was just, they, I, I, they went on a bit without me. I was always managing them, but I was a very bad manager. So I'm a very <laughs> bad agent right now. And um, uh, yeah, they kind of did a few more things and it was all really cool. There were kind of a uh, few underlying issues like, you know, when you pull up in a service station in a massive traffic jam in Germany and everyone jumps out and then just as you're leaving, somebody jumps out and you don't notice. You know, <laughs> it was a day to get back. You know, these things happened. Uh, yeah. yeah. I personally have never stopped working with music. I'm on it all the time, every day, 24 hours, except today where I've been chilling out. Yeah, absolutely. So then what, what's your next move? Because most people who finish with the, a band or some musical scene think, God, that was brilliant, but I'm now going to have to get my sort of aura together again. What happens to your next phase? square off basically squares off what happened was um we at the time had got organizing this yeah i mean so last week i was down at the parliament protesting the criminal justice bill which is this new this bill that pretty patel's put down that's going to make almost everything that we're discussing here even more illegal and um we were doing that at the same time because they wouldn't get rid of squatting in Hackney, which in which case there was like, you know, 14,000 squatters in Hackney. There was so much empty property. So we madly enough all got this festival together where the council actually agreed with me and a couple of other people that we would do this festival called Hackney Homeless Festival in Stone Newington. And Oh my God, it was just, pfft. all those Albion Fair people, Strawberry Fair helped us run it. You know, they really set us off on our thing. That's why what you're talking about with the <coughs> original Barshams and all that, I think they're really important in the DNA of some really massive parts of the event industry right now. Yes, I, you know, there is there's that sort of, because people are not really into trying to make money, they're just trying to pull it together and seeing how far you can take it and get, get you know, sort of not get to the end of it. But when you organise an event, there is that moment where you just think, I'm going to really enjoy this when it's kind of over because you just feel like, phew, we've just managed to pull that off. That could have yeah. gone terribly wrong. But it's kind of the buzz, isn't it? Well, the second one went terribly wrong in the end <laughs> uh, I mean <clears throat> both of them were pretty revolutionary for their times because we invited loads of new age travelers there so we made about new age travelers and squatters I mean you know people were camped up imagine this all the way down Stoke Newington double parts with fires coming out the roofs of their vans <laughs> for three days all the people living on the pavement, you know, it was pretty mad and predates the posh Blimey. Yes. So you, you survived those two offence and then where do you sort of take it? Because kind of... Oh, yeah, well, we kept going with that, but then people started saying stuff like... Um, well, me personally, I began to feel really frustrated at the 
large amount of really cool culture that we knew so well from touring with, from programming all these stages. We started Lost Vagueness by then at Glastonbury, so we were running a whole field by then. And then we were like, uh, this is ridiculous, all these great bands, RDF, Pain, Tarantism, Baghdadis, Tragic Roundabout, Transglobal. Yes. All Yaks were sitting around with nobody in the whole of England was representing them anywhere at all. It was just fucking ridiculous. So then we we made this <clears throat> we made a compilation of all those acts and then sent it to all our friends and so you know the people that we've been touring with and uh, the kind of other people and then um, things went on from there really. Yes. And how did you, I mean, at that stage, because kind of Glastonbury had slightly not cleaned up its act, but there was definitely sort of a moment, wasn't there, where Glastonbury became a little bit more organised, but held, if you can use such a word. You know, they did, you know, because remember when the fence just would always come down, wouldn't it? And it was all a bit like, blimey, there's a lot of people and it's going to take ages to get through one gate to another gate onto another field. And then suddenly they thought, right, we can't do this anymore. We're going to get the field, you know, we're going to get the fence. We're going to have it properly managed. And then suddenly spaces within Glastonbury suddenly changed as well, didn't they? Yeah, so the green field, which again holds a lot of the DNA of, you know, your stuff, the green field, in the beginning was where the theater, above the theater cabaret field where it is now and it was the first green field ever and they had that there and it was all pretty much into that little area and then they spread out as you say and then all the way to the top you know right to the very top and then uh yeah it did sort of expand at that point but because the fence was in they finally had control of what was going on Aside to the last fence breakage, which was in the last famous field, <laughs> but um, yeah, after that, then they had it a little bit more controlled, you know. Yes, absolutely. And what did you and how did you, on a sort of emotional, personal level, deal with these kind of I mean, gigs? Because obviously, you know, I used to sort of be part of an organization that you used to put on a, a camp, which was one of these 10 day camps in East Anglia you know, and we'd get 600 people. And it was always, it would, it was kind of an interesting time because, you know, you get the first weekend, everyone was very sort of fresh faced and excitable, lots of drumming. Then you sort of midweek, there would be this kind of wobble where everybody was having an emotional moment. And then at the end, you just kind of, things are kind of being patched up while at the same time, a few people were having psychotic problems because they sort of had swapping their kind of drug, drug, drugs for sort of different medication. And it was always kind of like, by the Monday when everybody was going and you were just clearing up the rubbish, you just thought, I really liked it, but I'm not sure if I'll ever do it again. But then two months later, you think, yes, I'm going to do that again because it's such great fun. And you forget. <laughs> you... So, how do you, so how do you sort of deal with that? I actually thought, was, why the hell would anyone even think of organising something like this? That was my first thought when I first went to Glastonbury. Funny enough. Well, it's all parts, isn't it? You know, as well. I mean, like, I don't get involved in production if I can possibly help it. I live in my own little island of uh, kind of musical curation. Right. I don't really do things I'm not so good at because it 
when I've tried to do it in the past, it's of course major, <laughs> major crowd issue, issues. <laughs> I'm trying to get involved with production in the past. Yes. Like to, my business partners can handle all of that. Yeah. So when, do, so when, do, so did you become a kind of the um? Did you, that's, that's... That's a that's a nice. So, do you sort of look at yourself as like a John Peel of of sort of you know a musical roster? Yeah. Uh, well, I would never put myself in those terms um, about the mighty John Peel, but I would definitely say John Peel's dedication to independent, non-mainstream music. Um, yeah is the reason why I think so many of us have come to those places in the beginning, especially rural people like myself coming from Torquay and yourself and everything, you know, that was the only thing that, you know, everything else in England at the time, apart from John Peel, another planet. Yes, <laughs> he, he, he provided that so <clears throat> And then, you know, it's kind of interesting. You obviously, you obviously have an ability to organise as well as using photocopiers and also being able to laminate signs which is always important at two in the morning when you think oh god no one's laminated the sign when did you when did your sort of like kind of business you know being able to sort of figure well, out how to yeah kind of around the same time really um with my illustrious business partner Mel Wilds who is you know super cool and she's on the case now she's putting on big acts all the time <laughs> as well as like crazy enormous geeks with Mandy, my business partner as well. And then <clears throat> after a little while, we, well, first of all, John Peel did really help us in a number of ways, as did Joe Strummer in a number of little just pushing ways for us. Because they could all see we were dealing with like just this purely independent crazy music. And then that started going off into crazy genres like Balkan remix, swing remix, <laughs> Alabama three, electro blues, you know, but uh, from those small things, because everyone was representing a type of music that didn't exist before. Do you see what I'm saying? So, yes. And it needs to go in a box back in those days, more boxed. Everybody loves that genre, boom something from the 50s when everybody loved rock and roll, then they were skinheads, then they were mods, then they were like, you know, all these different things. Yes, off. suddenly cow punk was a, was a term, wasn't it? You suddenly looked cow at people. Punk. Exactly. Love... Those genres are just enormous now. Yes. Some of just don't exist. Why do you think, because the Barsham Fairs, when they started, there was a medieval theme, wasn't there? And people yes. like to dress up. Why do you think we like to hark back to a different period? What was, what's the kind of your idea of, you know, this kind of need to sort of... No, I don't think it's a different period. I think it's a character of human behaviour. So, for instance, the dressing up thing, you're going to see that in the Barsham fairs, but you know, you're going to see that in medieval fairs, of course, in that area with your black Pete or whatever he's called, or you know, strange, mysterious creatures that have run across fairs from festivals for many years, which I've looked at quite a lot. 
I think it's a yes. type of behavior, you know, it's not actually like a type of behavior that makes you feel like you can step up in front of your peers and do something really weird behavior uh, and get a buzz off it. You know, the type of behavior of stepping into another character, bringing that forward, the basis of all theaters probably starts with people dressing up as big, strange woodland monsters. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, you know, the first theatre is that, you know, clearly, if you look at the, you know, when our guys in England were running around, you know, dressed in lots of straw, <laughs> what they were doing, the freaking Greeks in Sicily, you know, had already built like major venues for three or four thousand people. Well, you can even look around them now, and they call them production offices, backstage changing rooms, uh, you know, showers for the artists. You know, <laughs> it's been going for a really long time. So I think it's like, <clears throat> uh, you know, Freud had your universal uh, sort of behavioral patterns, or one of those guys. I think it is a universal behavior. I think it goes deep into humanity, and it's a very positive part of humanity. And uh, it must be really positive because every single, you know, dictator that's ever come along has tried to crush it, <laughs> <something or other. laughs> you know, all the way along. Yes. They nearly, they nearly had Shakespeare for being a witch. <laughs> Isn't it? And yet, you know, when we, when we sort of look back at some of that German history of the 1920s and 1930s, they got really into sort of woodland, the, the whole thing about sort of nature, the, the, you know, the body, you know, fresh air sort of yeah. whittling away, you know, there was this sort of, you know, I mean, they were not to youth, but they were sort of also into like almost Cub Scouts, weren't they? Which was quite a strange mix. Or Steiner. Steiner. <laughs> you know what I mean? Steiner and the team, way on out. I mean, obviously they had some German roots as well, but, you know, as an organisation and as, it's a bit like, you know, the Beatles were a four-piece band. How many four-piece bands are they inspired to be four-piece bands? <laughs> how, how many brilliant people did William Morris inspire? You know what I mean? All of this sort of stuff. It's just like all a part of carrying on, but it's amazing, really. Yes, absolutely. Those, those Barshall guys, I mean, it, it's really amazing. Albion Fair, you know, for me, Albion was a little bit of a crossover because of Tarby because of people like uh, Rory McLeod, because they all used to live in Hackney and Brotham Road in big squats when we were just like kids just getting into Hackney. You know, a lot of that stuff has urban roots. Yes. Um, you know. So uh, how did you come across the great Tarby Davenport? Was that somebody that you met quite a long time ago and um, sort of found out some of her sort of, her ways of working? <laughs> <laughs> can't remember <laughs> uh, Tarby we first came across in uh, oh yes we went to go and play at the Widow's Ball right annual amazing gig or something up there it might have even been a benefit gig for her oh and then we just realised how brilliant she was yes like to the strawberry fair posse as well, of course. So we, they were brilliant. They got seriously oppressed 
by the local authorities to try and stop them doing Strawberry Fair every year as well, which included annual drugs busts and stuff like that, you know, when there were no drugs and, you know, people get thrown out of their houses when they haven't done anything wrong. Went on really hardcore up there. But yeah, that the Strawberry Fair was... Um... We got done for tax, which is just absolutely crazy on all of those Barsham fairs and stuff like that when it was all like, you know, 50p is no one's making any money anyway. Yes, that was that. I remember that story and thinking, God, that's a bit harsh. And I think everybody I know was like, my God, blimey. Yeah, people kept up. That it was, was great. That was the terrible one. But then, I mean, you know, the, 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 the great or one of the great moments in your story is, is obviously you suddenly get one of the great sort of um, titles that you can be given. How did this just you know i'm sure you've explained it a million times but how how did this kind of come along because frankly you know roughly without being too judgmental one can't see this happening can you you can see you know mick jagger you can see paul mccartney but you know, you that's quite special isn't it well it certainly caused a lot of um excitement news. <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> Yeah, so we believe really solidly. We do actually really believe in diverse music and music from beyond the mainstream. And I suppose in some ways all the way through this journey, I could have been much more organised, stuck with one band, uh, followed them down the fame path when they became famous, kept going with another famous band. But we've always tended to like go for new things all the time. Mm -hmm. and, uh Feel like we've got no control over the um once the band becomes famous you know we we very early we knew we we couldn't have any control over them because we're not big enough yeah so uh we also really championed you know arabic remix where latin latin community of england mixes with the 21st century dance or whatever community you know and lots of those sort of different diverse cultures we think that's really important for instance you're never going to goddamn see an arabic act at any english festival ever when there's loads of cool ones yes so that's always been our bit of our mission and then we got a small grant from the arts council another one and then anyway whatever's down at the arts down at the arts council they've got a whole kind of like way of Oh, this year, this guy's been doing this for so long. So, you know, it's an arts council thing, really. It's not for DJing, unfortunately, which it should have been. Yes, that's a shame, actually. And did you and did you, did you get a letter in the post saying, by the way, this is quite exciting. You're going to get something really exciting. Well, bearing in mind my kind of like roots and stuff like that, I was all for not accepting that letter that came in the post because, yeah, very confusing you know I mean I don't really want to be involved with that sort of thing but then once my family found out it was like Jesus Christ this is like getting on with fourth ice fourth ice sale of the century and yes absolutely Saturday, Saturday <laughs> evening entertainment <laughs> So yeah, I went down that road, and I think I've lost friends because of it as well. You know, really. Yes. 
Well, I guess, I mean, in the 80s, we were, I was particularly uptight and angsty about everything. And, you know, any sort of whiff of kind of people being commercial was kind of automatically a sellout. And I always remember the, was it the comedian Bill Hicks talking about, you know, if you're in marketing, you know, kill, kill yourself because, you know, that's it. That's, that's the end of it. If you ever did a voiceover on an advert, you know, again, you couldn't listen to that person's record again because they'd oh, sold really? out. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but then now, now it's sort of, I remember, I remember listening to Stuart Lee sort of talking about trying to get films made and putting them on Sky Arts. And he said, well, I know it's Murdoch, but, you know, we're starving artists. We, we, need, we do need to get some money and we're not going to be able to do it as we used to. So you have to somehow just get paid. You know, that is just while trying to keep your integrity. So I guess that's the kind of the great sort of juggling act, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. But I mean, accepting. Yeah, the establishment, you know. I mean, a lot of people have said, uh, oh, you know. Maybe it can uh, maybe some somewhere along the line, rocking up with that MBE thing can be helpful. Yes. Well, you know, it's, you know. All my wild friends are all forever blagging me to write their references now, which is a bit strange. <laughs> have a clue what they do no absolutely and so <laughs> so look because because obviously we both love john peel and i do remember that one of the most amazing records he played was by a, a german north african band called dissident and i would just remember him playing it one night and just being completely blown oh away. my god you're gonna freak out dave your man from dissident is a friend of mine who i meet every single year uh he's at womex me and him got on really well. I'm trying to remember his name. I'm so like old, old school. I can't remember his freaking name. Well, he's in Berlin. I did an interview with him because um, I just, Same. I just wanted to get him on the show, and I just love that there was a record he did he called Electric dumb. Sahara, and it was just like, my God, that's yeah. such. It was just mind blown, and I managed to get the vinyl record, and just so pleased that I managed to track him down. And he was cool. Oh cool. my God, dude! I have a copy of the, a load of Distenton records here that I've never uh, been able to open on account of the fact that my record player is buried in something. Yes, well, that's that's the uh, that's the other but, problem. Uh, he's so charming, that guy, and I, and I feel for some reason he's like, oh, probably overlooked, but probably the the granddaddy of punk in the whole of Germany. Yes. Do you know what I'm I, saying? And then his world music thing was because he's at Womex, which is the world of music, art and dance. Big conference that goes on annually for all those genres. I've been for many years now, like 16 years. And so is he. And it is amazing that, that, that he just continues this and his take on that kind of global remix is fantastic. You know, it's really different. Yes, and also <clears throat> on the world of being ex inclusive, exclusive, inclusive. I mean, what? Because I did hear you, another interview where you were putting on kind of uh, raves for deaf people, which just sounded amazing. When did that um, idea come along? Well, it's it's definitely not my idea. It's an organisation called Deaf Rave, who, as soon as we found out about. I think they'd just begun anyway, about 10 years ago, we were just like, we absolutely love you guys because they're the nicest people bang up for the party. They, you know, make dance music. And since the beginning, they've had a lot of help. I think DJ Fresh is where they've got their main studio at the moment. 
and um, you know they there's different levels of death. Uh, I'm only can hear in one ear myself actually, and um, yeah, they they make music based on you know whatever they're feeling from the sound, even if it's just sound waves vibrating through their bodies. So yeah, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And Troy and the team are just yeah, they're kind of like family these days. Love yeah. them, love them. So yeah, we've done the first few festivals with them, uh, and yeah, long may we go on. In fact, they're they're now like properly getting funded by the Arts Council, which they weren't until last year. God, that's amazing. That is just well, a lot of the people involved in the deaf community are not actually Arts Council funded people funding people right that's um yeah it's not good so what's your sort of plan for the winter and next year what's what's kind of what have you been lining up the, the festival seemed to be roaring back for last year from next year so the period during the festivals i'm just trying to get a picture on it now is beginning to look very 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 busy and, you know, I hope I can physically actually do some of these two or three stage weekends. Um, but it's a very short period of time. And the rest of the time, I'm involved in a whole bunch of crazy projects at the moment. Like the team from Shangri-La created, a, all of us created this virtual reality universe. Ended up doing the first virtual reality festival in the world. Uh, ended up um you know with millions of viewers and stuff like that and then we were worried we thinking about when we're going to come out of lockdown what we're going to do and then i took a bloody amazing venue in bristol that sells out all the time called lost horizons right not that it makes me it's not my thing me personally there's so many costs uh so there's a whole amazing venue going on over there all winter and i'm doing loads of little gigs generally planning next summer. Yes, absolutely. And how did you cope? I mean, I know you probably got asked this so many times, but just roughly, how did you cope during the sort of lockdown period? Did you did you think, oh my God, this is a time to relax. This is time to rethink things. This is, oh my God, my life is going to take a massive change, possibly. I'm still coping with it now, to be honest. I'm still coping with it now. Because everybody's left the office and I'm like I'm like me and another guy are on the barge. I'm not used to that for starters. I've had like Continental Drifts is 26 years old of people hanging around and loads of people around. And, uh, you know what I mean? So that's another one. And then, uh, you know, we're both born in the same year. So you, you can't possibly in this job hold on to culture when it's not yours i.e. also if you're like some old geezer who's just like rucking out the same old stuff, it's just saying the youth have to take over. But, <clears throat> yes, that's part of my uh, musical career at the moment. Right, an existential moment. Did you yes. did you sort of find yourself being drawn occasionally to things like the Burning Man Festival in the depths of America? Uh, we are England's Burning Man, 100%. And we always have been, and that whole traveling lifestyle, massive festival, Robo Dock, crazy European, Ural Festival, um, bizarre things like the Mutoid Waste and uh, Arcadia and our Chaos 
and all of those post-industrial circus things accumulatively we are those guys yes I just wondered where you were you know did you did you sort of see things like Cirque du Soleil and and that kind of culture as well as being part of what you're trying to also sort of bring into your yes it's true and it was quite an interesting experience but as they you know those things have developed just to run those things they have to run it like you know uh, amazon fucking hacking house <laughs> <laughs> a lot of rules a lot of straightness they 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 certainly not using a lot of circus people use more people like olympic athletes you know stuff like that in their shows so but we have worked with them, but you know, I have so also seen that organizational body of work go from street theater to where it is now is an incredible journey. I mean, yes, absolutely. Do you sort of have you sort of at times the guys aren't running it anymore, by the way? So. No, they've long gone, haven't they? Do you sort of realize or did you ever sort of find yourself thinking about people like Andy Warhol and the factory sort of needing to be sort of surrounded by a sort of scene of people to keep your sort of own sort of creativity going. Is that kind of an important part of your sort of working process? Yeah. <laughs> you like asking President Trump honeypot questions. <laughs> I've always been like Andy Warhol. <laughs> no, I just kind of, I was just kind of, no, it was, well, there was a theatre company, the Theatre of the Ridiculous, I think, oh no, the Coquettes in San Francisco, late 60s, early 70s. And I okay. suppose there was that kind of scene and I've done some interviews with various members, Fayette and Pam and someone else. Mm. And it Which was just kind of, and, pardon? Which is a fantastic one of those in England. Yes. Good and wonder. it was... And it was kind of getting those kind of like-minded people together to have those kind of moments where the planets kind of line up and you just think, God, we've just got so many good ideas. And a bit like going back to that Beatles film where they're having those conversations about putting on some event and they're all coming from different angles and the tension is just, and and it's not lining up at all. And you can just think, I've been in those meetings and they are really painful. You haven't seen the end of it yet, right? No. I won't say anything about it. (laughs) Is it dramatic? Well, they needed a vibe engineer. Well, you'll have to see. (laughs) They needed a vibe engineer. So what what would you say to a 16 or 8, your 16 or 18 year old self starts now, if you could have just whispered something in in that person's Uh, ear? um, uh, I guess it would have been everything that you create first of all the i think what i would have said was listen uh there's no such thing as a new idea in fact as soon as you've had an idea and you've told someone it's no longer your idea and uh you know if you really want to sort of preserve your wealth you should probably be a bit more careful with saying whose idea it was if you've just, you know, painted a Warhol. Yes. It's your Warhol. 
<laughs> no, a bit too deep. Sorry, it's late at night now. Yes, basically, <laughs> yes. It's a tricky one, isn't it? The admin of life. Yeah. It yeah. is a difficult one. But yes, I guess it's tricky. It's tricky, isn't it? Anyway, well, look. Hey, no, finally, I would actually say, really, that is, if you believe in your musical thing, and I've seen it time and time again, if you just keep doing that thing, and you just keep believing in that thing, you will eventually get an enormous audience. Whether that's underground, overground, mainstream, never played on the radio, but every sold, every gig is sold out. That will happen. So everyone keeps dropping off, but we're like 25 years into it now. I've seen it time and time again, and I'm like, oh my God, you can't split up now? Are you kidding me? You're just about to earn a living from it. You know? <laughs> yes, absolutely. It was interesting. I did that um, an interview with the guitarist from Twisted Sister, and he was like, you got to do, you know, like hundreds of gigs to get good. And I guess with going back to the band, you did a lot of gigs to get as yeah. good as you. Hundreds. Hundreds. And what was as well with the way we really excelled at it, and some of the best bands in the world begin this way as well, is that we began on the streets. We were just like straight out on the streets, busking, bang, boom, Leicester Square. Round Trafalgar, up Covent Garden, with all the street theatre people, we were on the street playing for at least four years, giving it out. Wow, this is what gets the audience going. Wow. Yes. <laughs> this is how you dodge the police. Wow. This is how you get arrested by the police. Whoa. <laughs> well, the great thing is, all your work is, um, is there on sort of SoundCloud, isn't it? All the toughest stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So many. So many stories. So many stories. And um, write a book, even if it's just for the entertainment of my. Have you uh, managed to archive? Have you kept an archive of your kind of work? You know. Terrible at that. But I have got a lot of printed material. But I actually had a flood in my house this year and loads of it got ruined. Oh. Yeah, the whole of this area was under the same flood that hit Suffolk and destroyed um, one of the festivals up there as well. Shoot. Oh. That's not good. <laughs> yeah, what a shame. But anyway, do do one day write your book because I think it'll be amazing. <laughs> it's got to be done. I mean, these kind of subculture books are just brilliant because, you know, that's the, that's the history that people aren't going to tell. I mean, when you hear about the 80s, you get Dylan Jones talking about Spandau Ballet and the Blitz Kids and Duran Duran. You think... Well, you get whole, like, documentaries about what happened in Chelmsford or, Bas or uh, Basildon, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, David Stook's artwork, which I just put a load today because I just can't get enough of it. Have you seen that? No. David S T O O K E Stuke. Yeah, fantastic. He 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 he's a, a traveller guy and he just does these amazing real life oil paintings of traveller scenes. Somehow they really managed to keep that scene even more beautiful. Mm. Worth a look, my friend. There you go. And did you ever have a bus? Yeah, I had a number of uh, vehicles, but I had a common walkthrough for years. I was nearly the last band touring in a common walkthrough in the whole world. 
nearly self-taught for like five years and then i realized there was no foam on the padding covering the engine that changed the whole thing for about another five years until it blew up it's got to be done anyway look chris thank you ever so much for this this has been amazing it's been great to hear and actually i've been in touch with tarby and she said give me a bell and i haven't so i need to do that tomorrow because um it'd be good to get in touch with her dear old tarby this whole story together dude yeah, that's what it's got to be done. It's yeah, got to be done. Archive and exploring this whole community. And, and Tibetan Tony's been on here, I take it, yeah? No, Jesus Christ, not Tibetan Tony. Who had... Hang on, dear listener, we have to stop it there, Tibetan Tony. I know, stay tuned. Anyway, that was me in uh, conversation with Chris Tofu, uh, talking about life, love, festies, and all that kind of groovy stuff. As you do, look, um, this has been David East of The Sadie Six Show. If you want to contact me for some nice reason, just uh, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. You will find uh, some sort of contact details. And uh, you can drop me a line and say, God, David, that was lovely. Don't don't give me bad vibes, man. And also, all these shows have been archived for free. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Da, da, da. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>